Genesis 12, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called to Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he sojourned on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. gift of of being with your church and being with those that you've gathered here. Um, God, just just thank you for the blessing that is um, the body of Christ. Uh, I pray that you would 
speak through your word that, that Christ would be exalted, that, that, that what we see in, in your word would, would be Jesus, would be what you were doing and what you've accomplished through Christ. God, I pray that you'd move all distractions, that your Holy Spirit would be moving. Um, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the work that you do. Um, thank you that, that we are defined um, not by this world, but by, um, by Christ and, and when what he has done on our behalf. Thank you for Jesus in his name. Amen. So, did, did anyone spend any time this week? So last week we talked a lot about the, the difference of the world and we, we briefly saw in Genesis 11 with um, the Tower of Babel. We saw like they were making a name for themselves. They were, they were wanting to, um, their eyes to be on them, what they could accomplish, what they could do. They kind of saw that, that contrast and the people were defined not just by their success, but also by their, their failure even. And does, has anyone thought at all this week about kind of the definition of success in the world? Um, how, how we're often defined by the ways that we succeed or the ways that we fail. Uh, I was thinking about it quite a bit. Working in, admission, in the admissions office at ETSU, you know, all the time we're looking at where are the application numbers? How many students have been admitted? How many students are enrolled for next semester? It's very much, hey, you're being successful if the applications are up. You're not being so successful if the applications are down. I mean, I get a report every Friday at 4 o'clock. It's automated. It comes to my email. I can see where the international applications are week to week. I compare them to years in the past on a certain day. And it's, we're, we're, we're based, the success is based off of, <laughs> sorry, he was waving at me. Uh, success is based off of numbers and on us being successful. And I was also thinking, I was talking a lot to a coworker this week about spring training. It, it is baseball season, um, most exciting time of the year, and, and spring training is going on. And it's a, it's a time when there's a lot of emphasis on, for certain players, on their success during this month of spring training. For the, for the veterans, there's, it's kind of fun. They're just having fun. They're kind of relaxed because they know they're making the team. They know their spot is secure. There's those rookies, those 19-year-olds that get invited to spring training, they're just having fun. They, they know they've got no shot to make the team. It's just a joy to be there around all the, the major leaguers. But there's also that, that middle group, that group that like, their success in spring determines whether they make the team or whether they don't make the team. I mean, their, their success is based on their, their average, how well they hit the ball, how well they catch the ball, how well they throw the ball. All those things... It's, it's determined on their success, their ability. If they fail, they're not going to make the team. And a lot of things are, are kind of structured this way. A lot of things are, are built in a way that we gauge success off of what we can accomplish. And last week, it was kind of contrasting Abraham's call out of that. That, that Abraham was called out of the world and says, you've got to do this, this, and this to be successful. You've got to do this, this, and this to make a name for yourself. But God said, no, I'm going to make a great name for you. I'm going to make you successful. I'm going to bless you. And calls Abram specifically. And I want, to, I want to look this week a little further at failure and how it defines and how Abram is going to have a rough patch and, and some things that are going to happen. And so I want us to keep kind of the, that mindset still of what a worldview that is based on accomplishment, success, and earning looks like and how it's contrasted in the gospel. And I'll be honest, looking at the text this week, there's some weeks that right away, like right when I look at the text, it's kind of upcoming um, that, I, that I have the privilege to, to preach on, 
Some weeks it's like, oh, it's so clear. I know I, it's, the gospel is very clear there. I know, what, I, I know where I feel like God is, is, go, is going here. And there's other weeks that I spend a lot of the week really just asking God, God, what message, like where, how, where is the gospel making most clear here? What, what do you want to be said? And this was one of those weeks that I spent a lot of time just, just reading the text, reading these two different but similar narratives that we, that we read here, these two different um, stories in Genesis. And I'm trying to feel like, God, what, what are you doing here? Like, what, where is, where is like the, the deep, where is Jesus here? Where is the gospel in this text? And what I kept coming back to is how, again, closely these are tied together with last week. Now, it's not really part two, but, but, but there's a lot of similarities in this text. And we saw last week also that God choosing Abram was not, was not, it's not a story of, of, of Abram. It's not a story of, of man choosing God and, and man making the right decisions. But we see that it's, it's God choosing man. It's God choosing Abraham to make his name great and to accomplish his will through Abram's family line also said that even though Abram was, was promised these great blessings as a part of this, that it didn't mean that his life was always smooth, that his life always went well. Um, that's not at all, and we see, we're going to see some of this this week. But just remember that, remember the promises that God has given to Abram. He says, I am going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to curse those who... And dishonor you. Uh, he says, I will protect you. But then this week, I think we see a, just a glimpse, a picture of how quickly Abram is led to, to not fully trust that. Because right away we see an issue, right? In 12.10, Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. It's, it's easy to, to read this verse and skim past it really fast. It's just like a historical event or just a just a, a statement, a fact of what happened. But I think it's more than that because remember what God had just promised to Abram. Remember what he had just said. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And then all of a sudden we follow up and there was a famine in the land and the famine was great. This, if I'm Abram, who has just uprooted himself, just up and left, left his earthly inheritance, left the land that he had been in. If, if I'm Abram, the text doesn't say this, but if I am Abram, I'm like, what in the world? This is not at all what I expected when, you, when God said, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make you a great nation. He's not been given this land of abundance right now, but we see it's a land of famine. But he leaves, it says he leaves and he goes to Egypt. And I, I read multiple commentaries this week that said that Abram's first mistake was going to Egypt. And I want to be careful because I'm not, the text doesn't say that. But I think it, it does kind of open up a bigger discussion. I think that kind of the heart of what is going on here. Um, let's just keep reading it and, and I think we'll see. 11 through 13, I'm going to read this again. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is, my this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. There's a lot of red flags here. Um, 
He starts off great. Hey, I know you're a woman of beautiful appearance. I know that you're beautiful. Starts off well. Then he says, but if you're my wife, like, it's going to look really bad for me. It's going to go really bad for me. I'm going to be in a dangerous spot. Like, they're going to want you, and so they're going to kill me. Like, your life will be spared. That's what it says. Your life will be spared, but they will kill me. My point in this is not that Abram should have not been worried about his life. Or not that he shouldn't have wondered if they were going to kill him. Because we see, like, we see this happen. David, sound familiar? When he sees a woman he wants and has the husband killed? Like, that, there's biblical precedent for this happening. So it's not that he shouldn't have wondered, oh, this could be really bad for me. But, but look what he does. He, he, Abram's going to do this a couple more times through Genesis. But he takes this into his own hands. He says, Sarah, I want you to lie, to pretend that you're my sister. So maybe they'll save my life. So my life will be saved. And in protecting his own skin, he's putting his wife in danger. His wife, think of what it means for his wife. She's going to be going into Pharaoh's house to be one of likely Pharaoh's many wives. In, in, saving, in trying to save his own skin, Abram is putting in danger the one whom he is supposed to be protecting. And not only is he's fabricating this lie, but what we see is that he then is instructing his wife to, to lie. His, his sin is also affecting Pharaoh. I mean, it's not the good guy in all this appears when you look at the text to be Pharaoh. I mean, he didn't know. But I think if you step back, a lot of people made the argument on the, with this, is, is it okay? Is that righteous lie? Is it okay? Can you, is it okay to lie if it's, a, if it's order to protect, right, to protect innocent life? Is that kind of lie okay? And I'm not going to get into that a whole lot. But I do know that there's many places in the Word of God that talk about truth and talk about the value of truth, that God loves truth and hates lying lips. But I think at the heart of the matter, what you see is that Abram, remember what he's just been promised. God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to protect you. But now Abram said, well, I need to take this in my own hands. I'm going to, I'm going to have to lie and kind of go be a little sneaky behind it. And he puts it on himself to protect himself. And I think what you see is that he's not fully trusting that God is going to protect him. Because he fully believed that God could fulfill all the promises that he made. If he fully trusted that God was going to protect him, make his name great, and make him a, the, many, the, the, his family to be this great nation with many offspring, which we're going to see in chapter 13, if he truly believed that, then I believe his actions would have been a little bit different. But again, I already mentioned that we see his sin as affecting others. It's not, it doesn't just affect him. Abraham, it affects his wife. It affects Pharaoh. It affects Pharaoh's family. 
All this goes on. Like his sin was not just an isolated incident. But again, remember Genesis 12, 1 through 9. We looked at that last week. Uh, this, this call of Abraham. And it's a, I think we're being reinforced this morning that God did not call Abraham because he was righteous, because he was perfect, because he was blameless. I think we see exactly the opposite here. What we see is that God has called out someone who was scared, someone who was deceitful, lacking in faith. And I think this is, again, it's, it's good news for us. <laughs> because we talked about salvation last week, the salvation. We get a picture not of salvation that is based on a merit or based on, on how much faith we muster up or based on what we can accomplish or what we can do. But it's salvation that is based on grace, on, on God. But look at Abram's actions, his lack of faith that God can ultimately protect him. This lack of faith in his circumstances, his current circumstances, where he is at. His circumstances such so greatly, is greatly, greatly impacting his faith. And I know that my default is often back to what I think I can accomplish. We talked about this last week, that, that we default to, to, to ourselves. Like, that's why we have to remind ourselves of grace over and over and over and over again. Because we default to what we can do, the good works we can do, the, the, the good we think is in us. And I think we default to what we think we can accomplish, which Abraham, it was, I've got a plan. Defaults to his own plan. And which leads him to doubt the provision of God, that God was ultimately going to do what he said he was going to do. And I think that we can all see various times that our circumstances impacting our faith. Whether it's a really hard time, a really good time. You see, have you ever felt like you're walking through something really difficult, really heavy? And maybe you questioned, well, is God really good? Or you see this the state of the world. It's like, is God really in control? Look at it. Watch the news. Is God really in control? And listen, I don't think acting, asking those kind of questions is not always sin. That's not the point. I mean, you read through Psalms, you read through Job. There's a lot of times I'm like, God, where are you? God, when are you going to act? I see all around me. I see this sin in the world. When are you going to act? And so questioning God, my point is not that it is wrong. But I think it's reality that difficult circumstances influence our faith. But I think it comes back to what we see with Abraham is not fully trusting in God's provision. Because just we could give a ton of examples here. But as we as we envy, as we envy someone what someone else has, we're saying, well, God hasn't provided me enough. I want that. As we, adultery, lust, come from a place of like, God has not given us enough. I'm not fully satisfied until I have that. Or selfishness. We we trust that God has not given us enough, so we're going to hold tightly what we do have. 
not trusting that God is ultimately going to provide everything that we need. And I think it's easy to see that those, that same sin impacts others, just like we see in Genesis 12, the, the, these verses. Sin impacts us. We've talked about this numerous times. I know I have, at least. That our sin impacts others. See, Abraham, it impacts others. You, any of those sins that we just talked about, we've talked about envy, we talked about, uh, I mentioned adultery, lust, selfishness, all those things, it impacts others when we sin. But again, I think what we're getting is a picture of Abram here, of who God has chosen to save. Because listen, like God did not call people that had it all figured out he didn't call people who had figured out how to no longer be selfish, how not to envy, how not to lust. Like this is not the picture we see because we see a very imperfect Abram. We see a very imperfect Abram here. Like he's a sinner, he's selfish, he's a liar. It seems that he has the same default that I was talking about last week. The same default to self. We default to what we can do, what we can accomplish. We default to our own plans. But here's something I think is really, really awesome, is that the awesome part comes, at the, comes a little bit later. So this part, this first part is not. <laughs> but like, if you think of it this way, if you think of it based on a world that's, that views accomplishment and success and, and doing right, and a world that, that views that success as being a defining thing or failure being a defining thing, Abram just failed. Like, he was not fully trusting. Abram just failed. Why did God not just move on? Because I feel like God just said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to do all these things through you. But then Abram very so quickly shows that he's not fully trusting that God is going to do these things. Because the world teaches that's what you do when people fail, is you move on. You go find someone who's not going to fail. Spring training. If somebody can hit the ball, you go find someone who can hit the ball. There's lots of examples we could give. Like The world shows that to be successful means you can't fail. The, the, the definition, like your definition is not based, is based on whether you succeed or whether you fail. And I think that's more emphasized as we see in scripture. It's more emphasized with people who are maybe at some really low lows or people who are in the most need. I'm going to read Three little pa- three passages about some, some groups of people that the church has been called to specifically care for. We talked about these in the last probably six months. Um, but, so I'm just going to read these and we're going to talk about them for just a minute. James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Hebrews 13.1-3. 
Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though you were in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Deuteronomy 15.11 For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, to the poor in the land. It's like these are the groups of people that God says the church is specifically to care for. That his people are going to care for. Orphans, widows, strangers, prisoners, the poor. All people who have very little to offer in the eyes of the world. Very little to offer. Prisoners are often defined by the world, by their mistakes. Orphans, often defined in the world by the mistakes of their parents. Not always, but often. And they're defined by the system that they're forced to grow up in. Widows, often defined by what they cannot offer, what they do not have. Those who are poor, often viewed as having little to offer, having failed in some way, being just in need. Think of, we think of the addict, someone struggling with addiction. And the world says that this is a defining thing. That you're defined by your failure. Many individuals struggle to find work, to find housing, to find transportation, all these things. Because the world says, you're defined by this. Once you earn that title, you don't lose that title. The world says that's a defining thing. And I think the world says that they're worth very little. And in a world that's based on success, where you're defined on success, or you're defined by failure, some individuals are at a huge disadvantage. Whether it's a defining moment, defining lifestyle, the world doesn't look past these things. But I think what we see in Scripture over and over and over again is that our God is not like this. That our God is not like this. And we're going to... Let me show you. I'm going to go ahead and read Genesis 13, 1 through 13 again. So Abram went from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with, went, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And that time the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord 
destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abraham, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities in the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom are wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So again, we see another narrative right here. Um, but the land cannot support Abram and, and Lot that. There's, they have too many things, too many livestock, and, and so they, they separate. And I think it's easy to miss one, one thing here, and so I just want to point this out. Remember, we just read with Abram in Egypt that he, that he took it upon himself. It's like, I'm going to figure a way out of this. I'm going to make sure I help God fulfill his promise, because if I'm dead, God can't do that. So, so we see Abram kind of take that on himself. But remember, back in Genesis 12, we saw specifically the land of Canaan. God said, I'm going to give you this. He says, to your offspring, I'm going to give this land. So he shows Abram this. And again, it's easy to miss this, but the Abram who took things into his own hands in the first, in the first set of verses we read this morning, I think that Abram would not have given Lot the choice to choose the land he was going to. Because I, I think it's a display of faith when Abram says, you choose. If you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. He says, this way you see the, the Jordan Valley, and the other way you see the land of Canaan. And I think Abram could have very easily said, well, I know what God has promised me, so I need to make sure, I need to go that way. I'm going that way. Lot, you're then stuck going that way. And I don't know that he would have been wrong to do that. I don't know. The text doesn't give us that. What we see is that Abram in saying, Lot, choose your way. I'm going to go the other way. He's trusting that God is still going to fulfill this promise that he gave him. That I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to bless you. And I think it's easy to miss. There's that little subtle decision in the text if, if we're not looking but something really encouraging here is that what I see is that it's also a show that God is not done with Abraham just because he failed. And we're going to see over the next probably couple months here on Sunday mornings that God is going to use many different things to mold and to shape and to grow Abram. Some circumstances look really good for Abram. Some look really not good. I'm going to go ahead and read Hebrews 11, 8 through 19. Because I think we're going to see something, a picture of Abram that we haven't really seen yet. It's, I'm going to, spoiler alert, we're going to hear lots of things that we're going to look at on Sunday mornings over the next couple of weeks, um, months probably, looking at, at Abram's um, line. Hebrews 11, 8 through 19. Listen to what they write of Abraham. Abram, Abraham, same, same person. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place that he had, was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself 
received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they were seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your, your offspring be named. Hmm. This is the picture we get of Abraham looking back on his whole life. You see, it's a, it's a story of Abraham's faith. But it's a life that we see that is really a display of what God has done over and over and over again. Because if you, I think if you see, if, if Abram is defined by his, by his works, if Abraham is defined by his, only his success, then he's already blown it. He's already blown it very early on. And he's going to make that same thing he just did in Egypt, his lie, that's going to happen again and again. But I think the picture you begin to see is that, that God is using all this in, in growing Abram's faith. In showing his, and God is showing his faithfulness over and over and over again. Like, we talk about grow, mature, reach. Like, that's why that mature is so important. As we mature together, as God grows each, and, each one of us more and more into the image of his son. Like, that's why we want to focus on that mature, that mature aspect we see that ultimately this is God doing it. And we see that a promise that God made to Abraham, a promise that God made to Abraham, not even Abram's sin could nullify that promise. Even Abraham's failing did not remove that promise. I'm going to read the last five verses. So now the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that no one can count, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oak of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So God just repeats to Abram what he's going to do, what he's going to accomplish, what he's going to bless Abraham with. And again, in declaring this, God is telling Abraham, like, it's not your failure that is defining you. It's what God said he's going to do. It's not his failure that's defining him. 
Again, his transgressions, his sin, his failure is not what breaks God's promise. Like, God's promise is dependent on him. It's God being faithful to his promise. It's not Abram's failure, Abram's success. Like, God is declaring loudly that the fulfillment of this plan, his eternal plan, that he said before the foundation of the world, that it was not dependent on anyone else, but on God and God alone. It's sometimes said that the Old Testament is just law. And then we see grace in the New Testament. That the Old Testament is just law. The grace doesn't come until the New Testament. But I think what we see is that it's, it's always been grace. As, we, as I read this, it wasn't Abraham. It wasn't his blamelessness. It wasn't his sinlessness. It wasn't his perfection. It wasn't his works. I see faithfulness. I see obedience. I see holding fast to promises. But I see God doing that, not Abram. It's grace. And it's all pointing forward. We see the deliverer that has been promised. That Genesis 3.15, that there's one coming, that God is sending a deliverer, that that grace was going to be found fully in this deliverer, that he was going to come. All of this is just building towards that, that, that God displaying grace to Abram, and God not defining Abram on his failure. All of that is just a picture, this building picture of what Christ does, who Christ is. The faithfulness that God displays to Abram is the same grace that we receive in Jesus. It's the same grace that Abram, even after he fails, would have God come in and and reiterate, I'm going to show you again the promises that I made to you. Just because you failed, it didn't change that. Because it was never based on him. It was never based on his merits. It was never based on his success. It was not based on whether he was a failure or whether he wasn't. Like, the salvation that we have in Christ is not because we were great and succeeded. It was because Jesus, that we have victory in him, it's not in us. Like, in Jesus, we have mercy that is undeserved. We are shown grace that is undeserved. Like, the God that we get to worship the God that reveals himself to us in his scriptures, the God that gave his son to die for sinners, is a God that says you're not defined by your failures. Like, that is not a defining thing. Like, you're no longer defined by what you have or what you don't have. Like, we're not def- we, don't have to- we no longer are defined by our failures, by our sin, by our greed, our lust, our envy. Church, this is incredible, incredible, incredible news. Like the gospel says that you're not defined by your failure, but by the victory of Jesus. And like that is the gospel. That is the message that we proclaim to the world. We don't proclaim a message that is, you've got to be successful. We don't proclaim a message that, oh, if you fail, you're out. 
We don't proclaim a message that says, oh, if you fail twice, you're out. You fail three times, you're out. The grace that was displayed to Abram in Genesis is the same grace that is displayed to us in Jesus. Like, if that's not where you find your hope, like, I cannot urge you enough, plead with you enough, to find your hope in Jesus. Like, there is no other place that we find it. The unfair systems of the world, the, thing, the structure of the world that is built on being successful and never failing, that you're not worth anything unless you succeed, unless you can accomplish. Like, that is the worldly system. That is not the message of the Bible. Like the message of the Bible is that God is faithful in our repeated failure. That it's not based on our failure, it's not based on our success. But God remains faithful. And church, as Christ reconciled church, this church, like we have the opportunity to proclaim this message in word and to demonstrate it with our lives and demonstrate it Every day. Yes, we proclaim it to the world when we gather on Sundays. Yes. When we sing songs, when the message that is preached, that, that we, we proclaim this gospel. But we also demonstrate it. And let me explain. The gospel, again, declares that we are not defined by failure that we're not defined by how far we've fallen short. And we can demonstrate this as we don't define people by where they have failed, by where they have fallen short. It means that as we, as we interact and, and love people, that when someone fails, we pull them in closer. that when someone struggling with addiction fails, we pull them in closer and step in even closer. When we don't write people off, but we sit down right next to them and say, we're here with you. When the world says, you failed, we're moving on, the church says, no, we're here with you. We want to walk through it with you. Think of what this means for the care, for the church's care towards these individuals that I mentioned earlier the widow, the poor, the prisoner, the orphan. In a world that declares that their definition is on their failure and where they've fallen short and what they have or don't have, like we're able to stand in the gap and say, no, like that is not the definition. That is not your definition. That it's Christ. That it can be Christ. Like we have the opportunity to walk alongside individuals struggling with sin. Walk alongside one another as we struggle with sin and say we're in it together. We're here. We want to, we want to show you Jesus over and over and over again. Like we can remain steadfast when the world turns their back. Like the way that the church has the opportunity to love and care and serve the widow is a display of the gospel. Displays that their value is not found in what they have or don't have. 
the way that the church can welcome orphans into their home, displays the gospel of Jesus. Visiting those in prison. Helping someone navigate the consequences of breaking worldly rules. We have the opportunity to declare over and over and over again that that's not what defines a person, but that in Christ we have a new identity. There are worldly consequences, but we can remain and say, we're here. We're not going anywhere. Your failure doesn't define you. That Jesus, that through Jesus, God is continually faithful over and over and over again, and we can remain continually faithful. I, I really think like there's no louder proclamation of the gospel like, that can be demonstrated in walking through life with people and saying, we're not going anywhere because Christ is faithful to me. That, that we demonstrate that to others. That we demonstrate the faithfulness of God. Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What does this look like? This looks like hurt. This is hard. This is not leaving someone when they fail. This is sitting down right next to them and saying, we're here. This might mean hopping in your car at midnight when someone calls and they say they've overdosed again. This might be in a crying shoulder when someone is broken over the state of the sin in their life. This might mean hugging the orphan when they are, are, are lashing out in anger because of the way they, they view the world, their, their experiences. This means walking hand in hand with someone who is out of prison as they navigate the consequences, as they navigate the world. Guys, none of this is easy. None of this is glamorous. None of this is even seen often. But it's where the gospel is displayed. It's where we say, we're not going anywhere. We're going to remain faithful. We're going to be here with you because you're not defined by your failure. God says you're not defined by your failure. Christ has redefined you. That we have Jesus. Like, that's what God has done for us. Said so, like you're not defined by your failure. Even when you fail, even when you fail, you don't leave. He doesn't leave. Even when we sin, even now, he says, I've given my son for you. You're my child. I'm not going anywhere. But John 13, 35 says, All people will know that we are disciples of Jesus if we love one another. And listen, I firmly believe that God has put us here, in this location, in this location, to proclaim this gospel for his divine purpose, for his love to be displayed. And we, talk, we mentioned mature, but reach, as he has placed us right here in this location, I think that a lot of our reach is done through being present, through being steadfast, to not leaving with people that we interact with, not leaving when they struggle, not leaving when they fail, not leaving when they face the consequences that the world has. Because over and over and over again, we see God 
adding to the church. So you got bringing people to us that we're able to walk through really hard things together. Walking through extremely difficult times. Walking with people who are struggling through addiction. Walking with people who are struggling through hurt, through legal issues, through marriage, through pain. Over and over and over again, we're able to display the faithfulness that God has displayed to us. Over and over and over again. I say, we're here, we're not going anywhere. We don't define you by your failures because that's not how God defines you. Like that is a reminder to us, but that is a reminder to us as we share the gospel with the world. Like that is the gospel. Like church, the almighty God of the universe has said that, you are, that we are going to be righteous in his eyes because of what Christ has done. Holy because of what Jesus has done. Genesis 12, Genesis 13, we see that it's not because Abraham is great, it's because God is faithful. That God has said, I am going to do this through you. Over and over and over and over and over again, we're going to see this through Genesis, that it's not Abraham, but it's God writing this story, displaying his faithfulness to this man, to this family, that, create, that, that grows this man to a place that Hebrews 11 is then true because of what God has done, because of what God has done in the life of Abraham. But it's all based on what God has done. We are redefined because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And as we believe that, as we trust that, that he is faithful to his promises, we can then remain steadfast. We can walk through troubles with others. We can show them the faithfulness of God in our faithfulness. We're not defined by our failure, but we're defined by Jesus. Let's pray.